Okay, we are uh, launching into a new chapter in our Confession of Faith, chapter uh, 30, which deals with the subject of uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, last week we introduced this chapter and we um, surveyed the contents of the entire chapter with the outline that I uh, made up for this chapter. Did anyone not get a copy of the outline for the chapter? Yeah, that's right. You were off gallivanting around the country, weren't you? And you were a compatriot in crime. Tom? Okay, well, you got one now. Anybody else? Okay. All right. Sir, did I mess up? Or did I give you two? Okay. I figured you'd have one for the right hand and one for the left. You could read one with one eye and read the other one with the other eye, you know? Okay. All right. Okay, so anyway, we introduced the, um, the chapter and um, uh, we talked about the institution of the supper, the nature of the supper, the procedure for the supper, um, the nature of the elements of the Lord's Supper, and the worthy reception of the Lord's Supper and the unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper. So um, a lot of material there to cover. We'll be spending several months on this uh, chapter. Now, um, what we want to do then is is launch into into paragraph one, which deals with the institution of the Lord's Supper. And it talks about its inauguration, its observation, and its purpose. So we have a general statement of the doctrine in this chapter. first paragraph. So I'll read the paragraph and then we'll start talking about uh, its content. It says, the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. Now, um, what I want to do is start out with the very first uh, couple of words in this paragraph where it talks about the supper of the Lord Jesus. And this term, the Lord's Supper or the Supper of the Lord Jesus, is a term that is used to describe um, what we do on the first Sunday um, of each month. There are also a number of other terms that are used to describe it. You'll notice in paragraph two, it says this ordinance, and it calls the Lord's Supper an ordinance. Uh, Later on in paragraph two, it talks about the popish sacrifice of the mass. And so the Lord's Supper is called the mass. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called communion. um, It's called an ordinance. It's called a lot of things. And so what I want to do is talk about the names that are used to describe this uh, ceremony And there are eight of them that I want to discuss with you. Four of them 
are uh, ecclesiastical terms, that is, they're terms invented by the church. And four of them are biblical terms, that is, we find them in the scriptures. Now, the reason why I want to talk about the names that are given to uh, this ordinance is because the names convey an awful lot of information about what this ceremony is and about what it means and what it should mean to us and the attitude and perspective we should have on it. So um, our paragraph starts out with the Supper of the Lord Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it called a supper? And what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Paragraph two, it talks about in this ordinance. Why is it called an ordinance? Why would they use that term to describe this ceremony? And then it talks about the, the mass. Well, where did that term come from? And why would they ever use that term? And then in other places, it's called communion. Well, why is it called communion? What does that mean? So what we're going to do together then today, and I don't know if we'll get through it all today, but uh, today and, and, and next time probably, is we're going to talk about the names, the eight names that are used to describe uh, this ceremony that we call uh, the Lord's Supper. And uh, so these labels define the character of that which they describe. And just like the various names of God tell us something about God, so the various names of the Lord's Supper tell us something about the Lord's Supper. So first of all, then let's consider together the four ecclesiastical terms. Now, when I talk about an ecclesiastical term, I mean a term that's been invented by the church to describe a biblical concept. Okay, so we have a term like Trinity. Trinity is an ecclesiastical term. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't exist in the Bible. It's a term that was invented by the church in order to describe a biblical concept, though the term itself isn't found in the Bible. Nevertheless, it's a very useful and helpful term. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. There have been a number of terms that have been invented by the church to describe it. And these describe biblical concepts, even though the words themselves are not found in the scripture. Okay. Now, the first term that we want to look at is the term ordinance. You'll notice in paragraph two, it says, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his father, etc. And it's referred to as an ordinance numerous times in our uh, chapter that we're studying together. Now, something that is an ordinance is something which is ordered by another. That is... An ordinance is that which is decreed or ordained by God or by some other authority, such as a civil government. We speak, for example, of zoning ordinances. And what do we mean by that? We mean zoning laws. Where do laws come from? Laws proceed from authorities. Okay. So, for example, in Romans chapter 13 and in verses 1 through 2, uh, this term is used um, when it says, uh, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. So this word ordinance is used to describe 
the authority of God as it's mediated through uh, the civil magistrate. And so the significance of this term ordinance is that it conveys to us that this activity of the Lord's Supper that we are engaging in is not something that we invented. It's not something that arose from us, but it is that which is decreed or ordained by an authority, in this case, the person of God himself. And because it's an ordinance or a law, that proceeds from a higher authority, namely God, the word ordinance conveys the binding and obligatory nature of the Lord's Supper. Now, if we had instituted the Lord's Supper, then we could dismiss the Lord's Supper. If it's something we started, we could terminate it. But if the Lord's Supper is from God and instituted by God, then only God can modify it, order it, or do away with it. And so the word ordinance then conveys the obligation we have towards God for our participation in this activity and the binding nature of our duty to perform it as he has declared that it should be performed. So when we talk about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we're talking about the binding nature and the obligatory duty that lies upon us to perform this ceremony because God has ordered it or ordained it as an ordinance. So the idea of ordinance is the idea of the establishment of a law by the authority of God. So this is not something that we take lightly. It is as much of a law and a decree as uh, the Ten Commandments or anything else that uh, God has set forth. Okay, any questions about that term ordinance or its meaning? All right, the second ecclesiastical term that is used to describe the Lord's Supper is the term Eucharist. Ever heard that? Uh, the church is going to celebrate the Eucharist. Okay, well, <clears throat> it's a term that is used a lot by the Catholics, by the Anglicans, and by the Episcopalians. They use it all the time. Go ahead. E U C H A R I S T. Eucharist. E U C H A R. I-S-T, okay? And the word Eucharist is a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharisteo. Eucharisteo is a Greek word, okay? And the word Eucharisteo means to give thanks. So the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. And so um, if you look in your Bible in Luke twenty-two nineteen, Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, we see this term associated with <clears throat> the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> it's a term that refers to the thanks that Christ gave 
when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Notice Luke twenty-two nineteen. It says, and Jesus took bread and gave Eucharist. He gave thanks. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So the word there translated thanks is the Greek word eucharistao. Okay. And so when the word Eucharist is used to describe the Lord's Supper, it refers to the thanks that Christ gave at the Lord's Supper. And it also refers to the thankfulness that we have for Christ's covenant and for Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And so what is communion a time for? Well, among other things, it's a time for expressing thanks to God for the new covenant that Jesus instituted and to give thanks for the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that made the terms of that covenant possible. Now, as I said, we tend to, those of us who have a little wider ecclesiastical uh, exposure, we tend to uh, associate this word with the Catholics and the Anglicans and the Episcopalians and their various and sundry perversions of this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so therefore, we tend to shy away from saying we're going to celebrate the Eucharist today because people think, well, are you Catholic? But it really is a good word. It's a great word. Um, And it's a word we shouldn't be ashamed of using or afraid of using just because somebody stole it and perverted it doesn't mean it's now off limits for it. And so there's nothing wrong with using the term, we're going to celebrate the Eucharist today. We're going to celebrate the thanksgiving for the new covenant and the shedding of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And if the Lord's Supper is anything, it ought to always be a time of thanksgiving. It says in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And so it is a time of Thanksgiving. So the word Eucharist means thanks. The word ordinance means it's a law. Okay. Any questions about those two terms? All right. A third ecclesiastical term that's used to describe the Lord's Supper is the term sacrament. We often speak of the sacraments, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the Catholics have seven sacraments. Uh, They have penance, they have holy orders, they have matrimony, they have extreme unction, um, and uh, as well as baptism and the Lord's Supper, and there's probably one I've forgotten. Uh, But anyway, the word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which simply means a thing that is set apart as sacred. So... uh, when we set apart something as sacred, then the observation of that thing is called a sacred mint or a sacrament. Okay? So eating bread and drinking wine was, of course, 
ordinary and common in biblical times as standard food for everyday meals. I mean, at every meal, people drank wine and they ate bread. And so this meal of the Lord's Supper that consisted, of course, of what? Bread and wine was to be something different. It was not to meet our needs for nourishment and nutrition and hunger and the assuaging of thirst. That's not what the Lord's Supper is for. And so the Lord's Supper has a sacred purpose. It has a special symbolical meaning. And so this eating and drinking that we engage in is to be set apart in the minds of the participants as being something entirely different from our ordinary eating and drinking that we do every day for nutrition and for uh, the meeting of our, our needs for, for, for calories and, and vitamins. And so we see that part of the problem at the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, and you might turn there for a moment because we'll read a section out of there, 1 Corinthians 11. One of the problems of the church at Corinth is that they were treating the Lord's Supper not as a sacrament. That is, not as something set apart. They were treating the Lord's Supper as an ordinary meal at which to indulge themselves, not discerning that this meal represented the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. Now, when you sit down at your house, if you have bread and if you have grape juice or wine, you, know, you don't think of them as having any symbolic meaning. You think of them as being that which is going to meet your need for hunger and nutrition. And when we sit out in our fellowship hall and we have our collective meal that we call a potluck, you don't think of that as having any religious significance, whatever. It's a time to meet your needs for nutrition. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we set it apart from our ordinary eating and drinking. Okay, And in setting apart, we are making it sacred or different from what we ordinarily do when we eat. And so the problem at Corinth is that they were treating the Lord's Supper as an ordinary meal at which to indulge themselves and not discerning that this meal was separate from that activity and that it represented the Lord's body. Notice 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven uh, to 29. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, He says, Whosoever therefore shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself. Now here it is, not discerning that these elements represent the Lord's body not basic nutrition. Little interpretive reading there, but that's the message. So they didn't discern that what we do here is different than what we do out there. 
And in fact, what they did is they had their collective meal, and then in the midst of the collective meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and the whole two ideas got completely mixed together. And that's why we have a separate time and place and circumstance for the Lord's Supper than we do for our ordinary nutritional meal because we want there to be a division, a very sharp, clear division between them so that one is sacred and the other is ordinary. One is set apart from the other. So their conduct at Corinth was unworthy of the sacred, set-apart significance of the Lord's Supper because they treated it like any other supper. And so how do we sanctify or make sacred the Lord's Supper from ordinary nutrition? Well, we do it with our words and our actions, right? And by our words and by our actions, we make declarations that this is different from that, that this has a unique meaning, here's the unique meaning, and here's what we're doing when we do this. And you see, we do exactly the same thing with baptism, okay? Suppose we had a swimming party, and in the midst of the swimming party, we had a baptism. You know, people wouldn't make much distinction between, you know, dunking each other, and then this person gets dunked by the preacher, and it's just like all kind of the same, all mixed together. And you're not discerning that this is a symbolic act, and this is just an act of enjoyment. Um, and that's why... You know, we don't go swimming when we do baptisms. We go swimming when we go swimming, and when we do baptisms, we do baptisms. We don't mix the two. And we set apart that going under the water and coming up out of the water from what we do when we jump off the boat and go under the water and up out of the water by our words and our actions. So baptism is a sacrament. It's sacred. It's set apart. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It's sacred. It's set apart. And that's what we mean when we talk about the sacraments. We're just talking about the sacred or the set-apart activities. Okay, any questions about that? All right, the fourth ecclesiastical term that is used is the term, are you ready for this? Mass. M-A-S. Yes. Now, when we hear the word mass, <clears throat> immediately we think of the revolting Roman Catholic perversion of worship that they call the mass. And in fact, it's referred to in our own confession of faith. Notice paragraph 2, chapter 30. It says, so that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ, only, own only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Now, have you ever wondered where the term mass came from and why the Catholics use it and why it was used in the church for 1,500 years to describe the Lord's Supper? There's a reason why it was used for 1,500 years to describe the Lord's Supper. Well, <clears throat> the word mass comes from the Latin word missa, M-I-S-S-A. And the word missa in the Latin means to be dismissed. 
So if I say to you, you're dismissed, I would say to you in Latin, if I knew Latin, I would say you are missa. And from the word missa comes the word mass. Now, what used to happen, and it still happens today, <laughs> uh, we celebrate the mass every time we do the Lord's Supper, and you will soon see how we do. We have a dismissal. But how it used to go is that we, they, they would have regular church services where both the believers and the unbelievers would gather for church. Okay? We have unbelievers show up here at church, don't we? And the believers and the unbelievers meet for church. Okay? But after the regular church service, all the unconverted, unsaved people who were not yet publicly baptized and declared publicly their faith in Christ, after the regular church service, they were all dismissed from the church. Uh, it, it, was, it was declared all the unsaved people now need to leave. And the unconverted were dismissed that only the baptized believers remained behind for the communion service. And that was the historical meaning of the word mass. It just simply meant the dismissal. It's time for the dismissal. It's time for the Lord's Supper. All unbelievers, since they cannot and must not partake of the Lord's Supper, were dismissed so that they wouldn't partake, so that only the baptized believers were there and would. And so the Roman Catholic Church service, which revolves entirely around their communion service, is therefore called the Mass, with supposedly only the faithful in attendance. Now this word originally, however, conveyed the biblical truth that while everyone may attend church services, only believers are to participate in the Lord's Supper. And all others were dismissed in order that those not qualified might not be tempted to participate and thus bring judgment on themselves. Now, when you read about the times of the observation of the Lord's Supper in the Bible, every single time it's mentioned, it is baptized believers who are participants. It is the disciples who broke bread. It wasn't the unbelievers. And so whether it was the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room, Judas was dismissed before the Lord's Supper was instituted. Remember, Jesus said to him, that thou doest, do quickly. And he went out. And it was then after that that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with the remaining 11 apostles, all of whom had been baptized and uh, all of whom were saved. And then we see the same thing in Acts chapter 2 when it says that as many as received his word were baptized and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls and they, the 3,000 souls, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine uh, and fellowship and breaking of bread and of prayers. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says the disciples met for uh, the, the Lord's Supper. Okay, now then, 
how do we do this as Sovereign Grace Bible Church? We too have a dismissal. When we have a communion service, I preach a message on some aspect of the person or work of Christ for 40 minutes or however long I preach. Okay, At the end of which, we pray and we sing a hymn. And then I verbally dismiss the unconverted and the unbaptized from partaking when I give the exhortation regarding the Lord's Supper. And you remember, I always say something to the effect that the Lord's Supper is for such and such type of person. And if you do not meet that criteria, we ask you to abstain from partaking. But if you meet such and such a criteria, we invite you to partake. And while we don't ask those who don't meet the criteria to leave the room and dismiss them in that fashion, we do dismiss them from partaking in the elements when they are passed. So we verbally do this when we give the exhortation as to who may participate before we serve the elements. We dismiss the unconverted and the unbaptized from partaking verbally when we disqualify them from participating by virtue of the fact that they have not embraced Christ as Savior and confessed him in baptism. So these then are the four ecclesiastical terms. The term ordinance conveys the idea that this is one of God's laws that is binding upon us that we must obey. The term Eucharist conveys the idea that this is a time of thanksgiving to God and to Jesus Christ for the redemption that's been provided for us. The term sacrament conveys the idea that this meal is set apart from all other meals in that it has a symbolic significance with reference to Christ that no other eating and drinking has. And then, of course, the term mass speaks to the fact that those who are not baptized believers in Jesus Christ are to be dismissed uh, in one way or the other from partaking and participating in the Lord's Supper. And that's why these four terms have historically and indeed still currently are being used to describe um, this ceremony. Are there any questions? All right, well, next time we will take up the four biblical terms and uh, we'll see how those terms are used and the message they convey. And then we'll put all eight of these terms together and I think you'll see uh, that the names that are used convey a tremendous amount about um, the Lord's Supper and its meaning and significance and observation. Um, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you so much for giving us this wonderful ordinance, this law that came from the lips of our Lord Jesus. And Father, what a wonderful time of thanksgiving it is. What a delight to remember and reflect on what Jesus has done on our behalf. And Lord, we recognize that this is not some frivolous activity that we are engaging in. It is a serious and solemn thing set apart for the worship and remembrance of Christ. And so 
Let us never think of it as ordinary eating and drinking, but as something highly uh, symbolic and separate from uh, meeting uh, some nutritional need that we have. And Lord, we uh, pray that you might help us to uh, eat and drink of the Lord's Supper uh, as those who are qualified. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, you've given great liberty uh, that Christians of any level of maturity and any degree of sanctification may partake, but no unbelievers uh, may partake. And so, Father, we pray that that distinction might be clearly understood and maintained in our assembly so that Christ um, is honored rightly uh, and those who partake are worthy of doing so. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.